0: Uh, Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves.
1: John Todd was a fascinating, troubled, and troubling human being who straddled the worlds of fundamentalist Christianity and postmodern occultism like no one before him and no one since. In 1973, Todd rose to a kind of fame among evangelicals as a Christian convert who had been raised as a witch. But these witches were not just your friendly neighborhood neo-pagans we've all come to know and love. Witches, in Todd's telling, were key players in a global conspiracy organization better known as the Illuminati. America was the linchpin in this plot. And only a mass Christian conversion could prevent its fulfillment. Rock music, or witch music as Todd called it, was created to draw people away from the Christian churches and toward Lucifer. In addition to being a former witch and Illuminatus, Todd also claimed to have worked for a satanic record label named Zodiac Productions that changed its name because of the negative publicity he later brought to the organization through his ministry. Zodiac Productions was behind every major record label and used a master witch tape to disseminate literal demons through the records it sold. Todd drew popular attention to himself among fundamentalists twice in the 1970s, in 1973, he appeared on Doug Clark's Amazing Prophecies TV show on the Faith Broadcasting Network. But his association with Clark ended when allegations began surfacing that he had been fired from a Christian coffeehouse because he had been propositioning teenage girls for sex. Unfazed by these allegations, or perhaps believing them to be part of an anti-Todd conspiracy, Christian cartoonist Jack Chick featured Todd in one of his widely circulated Chicks tracts, titled The Broken Cross, and published in 1974. After 1974, Todd dropped off the Christian radar, moving to Dayton, Ohio, where he opened an occult bookshop called The Witch's Cauldron and conducted naked rituals with at least one teenage girl that landed him in jail. He was probably operating under his witch name, Lance Collins, when he was in Dayton. Jack Chick hired a lawyer to get Todd released, and Chick, still unwilling to believe Todd could be guilty of assault or statutory rape, published a second Todd-inspired comic, Spellbound, mark, in 1978. The second comic coincided with Todd's real rise to fame. In January 1978, Todd was invited on a speaking tour arranged by Tom Berry, pastor of the Bible Baptist Church in Elkton, Maryland, not far from where we're recording right now. Tapes from this and earlier speaking tours had been circulating, growing Todd's fame in an underground fashion. These tapes are still available on YouTube and receive tens of thousands of views. As a scholar, it's difficult for me to name firsts, because someone always comes along with an earlier version of whatever you claim to be a first. But Todd was ahead of the curve with the Satanic Panic and among the first to claim to have participated in the Illuminati. Note, uh, I'm not saying he was the first to claim the existence of an Illuminati conspiracy, but one of the first to claim that he had been a member. Earlier conspiracy theorists like Webster and Miller believed they had uncovered plots by reading the signs from the outside. Todd, as well as future satanic abductees like Michelle Smith and CIA sex slaves like Kathy O'Brien, would claim to be escaped insiders. Todd established, or at least popularized the narrative, and was the only one among them to have actively participated in actual modern occultism. His many faces, witch, fundamentalist convert, Illuminati whistleblower, comic book superhero, and convicted predator, make his story difficult to tell. But his fractured personality also reveals the cracks in the occult conspiracy narratives he helped to propagate and even invent, narratives that occupy an important place on the telephone chain informing the anti-occult and Illuminati conspiracies that circulate today. All right. My name is Rob C. Thompson, Doctor of Things Occult. I am uh, your supreme hierophant of the Secret Order, and I am here for for the next month here for the next two episodes uh, with Johnny Cook, our uh, patron progenitor. Hello. There he is. (laughs) How are things, John? What's going on?
0: Absolutely nothing.
1: Nothing at all. Well, because you you can't leave the house. but you're working, no, right? No,
0: so I, I can't. I can't progenate. Is that the word? <laughs> you can't. <laughs> I can no pro- longer progenate. <laughs>
2: it's not,
0: pro- not progenate. <laughs> you I can't
1: progenate into the world. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, exactly. There with John is Bree Literal, our uh, metallurgic prophet. Hello. What's going on with you?
2: I'm sitting in a pantry right now. So sitting in the pantry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So this is.
1: This is uh, day 2 I guess of recording from home. Uh we we have uh thanks to our patrons we've distributed some some new equipment and uh we've got different folks around the state of Maryland <laughs> now working together remotely. So uh we've got a whole elaborate setup here where we're working with each other Bree and John from the pantry. Yes. And me from from my walk-in closet. Uh but <laughs> These are uh, the ideal spaces uh, for acoustics, as we found out. Bri, how much did you test all the rooms in your house?
2: Yes. It did not go as well as it did in the pantry. Um, <laughs> it was bad. It was bad everywhere else because there's, so there's just like, so many windows.
1: Oh, the windows. Yeah. yeah. So you're getting nice hermetic seal on your sound environment, and the flower is absorbing the echo of your sound and the pasta yes. boxes. <laughs> yes. All right, let's get to this pledge, shall we? We the members, members of, of the, the secret, secret Order, order of, of Alchemical chemical actors, actors do, do solemnly, solemnly commit, commit ourselves, ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the of occult as far, as far as we know it. it. Wow, that was nice. That felt really good.
2: That was Thank solid.
1: Yeah, nice job. All right, this is gonna. right, yeah, I'm excited us. now. I'm excited to spend the next three hours with you guys.
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so yeah, uh, just a note before we get into the plugging and, and what have you uh, Olivia is off uh, for, for this series of episodes She's working on a couple of other projects for us um, A new thing for our patrons um, And she's going to be doing a couple of special episodes in our uh, Evil Spirit series uh, I, don't, I think that's what I'm calling it uh, Which is coming up closer to Halloween um, And we've also got this secret project that we can't tell you about yet But that we will tell you about soon so she's working on that. Uh but uh John and Bree are here for the long haul. So the research that we're presenting today on John Todd uh Bree Bree has been intimately involved in this process. Uh when yes. we used to share time on campus together. Uh Bree sits in in our green room uh, where my students dwell when I'm uh, when they're not I don't know learning things. And uh, I would periodically come in uh, and rant about the things I was discovering about this man, John Todd.
2: (laughs) And what things you came in to talk about. It was insane. You took right. me on a whole journey. I felt like I was reading the books with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so this has been uh, probably my most involved research that I've done for this series. Uh, and and uh, so I, I wanted Bree to get could be able to come full circle with this and, and join me for the episodes that sort of tie all this together. Uh, but it is going to be two episodes uh, because it's going to take that long, really, for me to explain the story of this really bizarre, interesting, but kind of horrifying human being, John john todd uh who was also lance collins like he's a complicated man so uh yeah. this episode and the next episode we're recording on the same day we're gonna do for for our the three of us are gonna get this all done right in one shot Woo! but you guys will get it on normal schedule all right uh Bri, do you know how to open up the plugs
2: um doesn't olivia just make a bunch of weird plugs she says plug really weirdly three times or something
1: three times because you know the rule of three
2: Plug. 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 Okay, John.
1: Um, <laughs> just cut Let's talk there. about our patrons. <laughs> uh, we've got a uh, nice crew of new folks joining us. Again, very grateful. It is time of COVID. Uh, we appreciate... Uh, well, I guess it, it's still time of COVID, and I guess it will be for the next six months to a year. Let's hope sooner rather than longer. Uh, but, you know, economic downturn and what have you. We appreciate uh, y'all joining us. We have Ashby kyle r so ashby by the way is not ash and then b it's ashby ash (laughs) you know it's all one word Uh, kyle r though that's kyle plus the letter r uh isaac who uh is a resident of lovecraft's own providence rhode island uh and is definitely on board with our idea for dagon bracelets which is the last episode you guys you got to check that out we got a merch idea what would dagon do Oh. Uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. You got got to listen to it. It's anyway. Uh, And I do want to mention Flesh Eater. Our friend Flesh Eater uh, has given us a pledge bump. So we appreciate that, Flesh Eater. Thank you so much.
0: I'm glad they're our friend.
1: Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Better to have Flesh Eater on your side. Uh, all right. Uh, we do want to mention the merch is still out there. O- Olivia is able to get back to the post office. Uh, there was a time there where we weren't able to <laughs> mail out merch, but the t-shirts are are still available. Uh, and you know, I don't know, rate, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, okay, uh, that's all I got for the plugs. We can close them all up. We got a lot to do today. Go ahead, close them up for me, Bree.
2: Does she just say plug again three times? Y- yeah, yeah. Plug, plug, plug. plug. Uh. <laughs> Gotcha, it was, John. I tried. Element Failed.
1: of excitement there to see if John would sneak in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, part, part one of part one. So, this is part one of the John Todd story. Uh, and I guess, chapter one this is John Todd, colon, conspiracy theorist. The face that Todd most wanted to present to the world was the one he wore during his preaching career from roughly 1973 to 1978. The version of Todd that brought him the most attention. John Todd, the conspiracy theorist. To establish the through line of his conspiracy narrative, I'm going to draw on the speeches he gave and the exchanges he had with various congregations during the question-and-answer sessions on his 1978 speaking tour. Uh, this, by the way, uh, was through uh, Maryland, started in Maryland. So local connection. As with previous episodes, is that good or bad?
2: I don't know. That's why I started laughing.
1: Oh, it just makes you uncomfortable.
2: <laughs> a little bit, a <laughs> okay. little bit.
1: It was Elkton, Elkton, Maryland. Uh, so oh, as with sense. previous episodes, don't what, you what don't was even...
0: it? I used to live in Elkton. It makes sense. Did you really? Yeah.
1: Huh. Did you go to the Bible Baptist church there?
0: No, I didn't. But like I said, it just, it just makes sense. (laughs)
1: That John Todd would get his start there. Okay. Yes. Uh, So as with previous episodes in telling Todd's story, I have to note that I'm not endorsing his story in any way. In fact, I'm going to spend some time debunking at least some of it eventually. Uh, But I want uh, our audience to get an idea uh, of his claims and the way he presented them. So this is Todd from his own perspective or from the perspective he wanted us to believe. Todd was one of the Collins bloodline that originally brought witchcraft to Salem, Massachusetts, changing their name to Todd before the Civil War. His ancestor, Francis Collins, was the first head witch in America. That's with a capital head, capital witch. Todd's ancestor Francis had manipulated the community at Salem so that they ended up murdering a bunch of innocent people in place of the actual witches who were really living among them. Except that is for one prostitute who was accurately hung for being a witch. Good job, Salem. Woo! For his part... Woo! for his part Todd had gone by the name Lance Collins but also John Todd Collins at different points in his life uh, connecting back in with that Collins bloodline he was initiated into a coven at the age of 13 when were you guys initiated into your covens
2: Um, still
0: waiting on my application
1: it's still pending
0: <laughs> yeah I'll hear back in 6 to 8 months
2: <laughs> oh, wow, that's a long wait for
1: your coven, John They're popular Because of COVID How about you, Brie? How old? Um, I, hmm <laughs> Well, you're an actual neo-pagan So when did you start uh, doing that?
2: Oh, um, it's been a few years since like
1: <laughs> Were you 13? Younger?
2: I think I was around 14, actually
1: Thirteen was actually a significant number in Todd's occult lore. His initiation into witchcraft in Columbus, Ohio, hotbed of witchcraft, as we all know, was identical to the Masons' initiations, the Freemasons, that is, and Todd welcomed Freemasons at the congregations he visited to challenge him on this assertion. He sort of, like, welcomed fights with the Masons. He was like, you guys are doing witchcraft (laughs) initiations. I don't care what you say. Come at me. (laughs) Except... Uh, That the difference, the only difference between the witches and the Freemasons is that the witches used blood in their initiations, whereas the Masons did the same thing, but just took the blood out. So (laughs) a little bit kinder and gentler, I guess. Much less metal. Say, I want the blood. Significantly less metal. Uh, So at the age of 18, Todd became a high priest. He was exempted from the draft as a minister, but enlisted in 1968 in order to spread witchcraft through the military. Stationed in Germany, he got into a two-hour shootout, two hours long, in Stuttgart, and he killed an officer. He was placed in solitary confinement to await trial. Now, I got to remind you, this is all the story Todd told about himself, and we have to take it all with a grain of salt. All right. Uh, so he's placed. So he's he's placed in the brig, wait, awaiting trial. Todd did not want to leave his fate in the hands of the military court, though. Remember, he's a witch. So he got word to his mother to cast a spell so that the jury would see him as a nice guy. It's kind of a minor spell. So You think he would have done something more major when he's on trial for murder. He's just like, I know, I want right? A...
2: He's just like, I just want to be a nice guy. You know, you don't have to, like, help me get out or anything. Just make Nobody them think i Nobody executes I'm nice. a nice
1: guy. Right. Uh, so uh, so <laughs> the next day, a senator, a congressman, and some generals arrived at his cell to give him an honorable discharge. This high-ranking intervention struck Todd as unusual, but he understood that it had to be connected to the message he'd sent to his mother. Oh my god. Right? Still unaware. So this he's an ignorant high priest at this point in the in the army. He is unaware of the Illuminati's role in witchcraft. He's about to find that out. So he has no idea of the plans they're making for him. He has no idea that them breaking him out of prison is the beginning of this deep witch cult Illuminati journey. When he landed at the airport in Ohio, he received a plane ticket to continue on to New York. Surprise, surprise. He was picked up at Kennedy Airport by Dr. Raymond Buckland, who Todd claimed was the head of anthropology at Columbia. Again, I'm not going to debunk Todd at this point. We'll do that later. It seems like a minor point, but it actually turns out to be a major one. But remember this name, Doctor Raymond Buckland. You got that in your head, John?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I also have it in my head, Rob. Just just in
1: case, as a backup, we're we're gonna put John on remembering duty today. Okay,
2: makes my life. I can do that.
1: (laughs) It's a lot to remember because again, we have three hours of John Todd to
2: get through. (laughs) This man does some wild shit. Okay, yeah, we are all you got a lot.
1: (laughs) I mean, all I have to remember is Ray, so I'm good. (laughs) Okay. So Raymond Buckland, uh, the the professor of anthropology at Columbia, uh, explained to Todd that the gods and goddesses Todd had been worshiping were actually demons. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Witches, he says,
3: generally don't believe in Satan, though. And it was quickly explained to me that Lucifer was a good god, not an evil god, and that Jesus Christ was the imitator. So I learned, and I learned many things of both witchcraft, and I also learned while the senators and the politicians were there. They were there because we were the religion of a political organization called the Illuminati. It's at this point in
1: his presentation to the congregations that he's speaking to uh, that Todd projects an image of the back of a $1 bill onto a big screen. Now, it's the 70s, so we're talking about, you know, like one of those click projectors and, yeah, the pull-down screen and all that. This, he tells them, is the seal of the Illuminati. You know, the back of the dollar bill?
2: Oh, okay.
1: The great seal of the United States with the pyramid and the little eye on top. Yeah. So he says, there's your seal of the Illuminati. And the congregation's like, oh, and they clutch their pearls. So...
2: (laughs) Because they all had pearls.
1: Todd's question about the great seal of the United States, and it's, it's like hilariously a good question, is... This can't possi- this is an Illuminati symbol, he says. It can't possibly be what they claim it to be, the Great Seal of the United States, because no documents were ever sealed with it. Wow. Right? Oh, okay. Wow. Wow. Wouldn't you expect to like seal some things, like the Constitution or something? They just like stamp that thing. We just don't <laughs> seal anything, apparently. No, we didn't seal a thing with that great seal that we have.
2: <laughs> we have this seal, but we don't use it.
1: Nothing's been sealed. Everything's unsealed. <laughs> <laughs> right, like, you don't go around the CIA and see all their classified documents have got the pyramid on them.
0: That's a good point. That is legitimately That's a good That's an actual
1: point. point. Wow. Right? It's a good question. <laughs> this, is, this is the last one, so don't get used to it. After this, it's all downhill. <laughs>
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's bad.
1: Starting now, he claims that the number 1776 refers to the founding year of Adam Weishaupt's Illuminati. Of course, the number 1776 appears on the $1 bill and on the Great Seal of the United States. Um, and that is the year that Adam Weishaupt founded the Illuminati over in Bavaria. Uh, however, <laughs> as we all know, that's also the founding year of another thing. Any guesses? Um. The dollar? The United States. <laughs> seventeen seventy six. So you guys have had a rough day. All right, so I'm good at
0: remembering things, not knowing
1: things. Not recalling them. Remember that year, John, seventeen seventy six. Okay, cool. Gotcha. Uh, so <laughs> Todd implies that, that it's not a coincidence that the United States was founded the same year Adam Weishaupt founded the Illuminati. This, this to him is like, you know, this ultimate secret behind the whole thing. It's popular in conspiracy theories.
3: On the top of each pyramid, you'll see a capstone with an eye in it. The eye is Lucifer, their god and their voice. Todd belonged to the highest
1: council of 13, of all of the councils of 13. Under the 13 are 33 Master Masons, and under them are 500 of the richest people in the world. So the richest people in the world serve the Master Masons. There are 33. There are 33 degrees, I believe, in Masonry. Does that sound right?
2: Uh, Maybe. Sure.
1: Yeah, so there's 33 Masons. So So like Bill Gates works for the Masons who work for the... Illuminati witch cult, who's the Council of 13 at the top? You got the pyramid? The yeah. first
0: or second Council of 13?
1: Is this is the one. This is the top one. The top, top one. council. Okay. All how many other councils? We don't have to worry about them. Those are for poor people.
2: But how many are there?
1: I don't actually know. He, how he many implies. Thirteens? Since he is belongs there? to the highest council, it does imply that there are other councils, but he doesn't say anything about them.
0: Huh. Yeah. All right. They are for poor people. You're right.
1: Yeah, they're for the poor. So. Screw him. Uh, the Illuminati's various—I see—I don't mean that. We're in the Todd. We're in we're in Todd brain right now. He's so, channeling. He's channeling Todd. Ch- channeling Todd brain. So the Illuminati's various religious bodies include—you're going to love this list. So these are all oh, Illuminati boy. religious organizations. Number one, can you guess who's the n- number one? Let me let me give you a hint. Tom Cruise.
2: Oh, Scientology.
1: Yeah, Scientology, of course. That's uh, this... not what
0: I was going for.
2: <laughs> what were you going to go? Hollywood. What? That's not a religion. Oh, ho- yeah. <laughs> It's not.
1: But it 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 implies, right, that there's this cultural control. Uh, the Satanists, and we're going to get there, by the way, John. You're going to love all the things we have to do with Hollywood and, and uh, the music industry. Oh, I'm ready. So the Scientologists are an Illuminati religious group. The Satanists are a religious group. And the Process Church of the Final Judgment, uh, which Todd says is Charles. The what? Oh, the Process Church. Process Church was a a UK church founded in the, I think, late 60s. And they're sort of like quasi-Satanic. They believed in Lucifer and, and some scholars classify them as a branch of Satanism. And Charles Manson did have ties to the Process Church.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. They mm-hmm.
0: should have chosen a much more straightforward name. I know. Just call them the quasi-Satanists. The, the quasi-Satanists.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for when Satanism is just too strong, you need quasi-Satan. Yeah. Yep. Because they just sound like rehab.
2: Like <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of sound like a rehab.
1: <laughs> putting you through the process. And I'm sure they do. I don't know much about them, so I, I can't speak at length about them, but uh, we are going to talk about Charles Manson quite a bit today, so something to look forward to. Yes. Also, the Rosicrucians, who we gave a whole episode to this series, and uh, he says the Rosicrucians practice human sacrifice, by the way.
2: Yes. Sorry. So. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) uh,
1: So, as a member of this elite body within the Illuminati, Todd was able to meet Lucifer himself. What a day.
3: I've seen him sit down at tables, at meals. I've seen him even have sexual relations with women at witchcraft meetings, at higher meetings. He appeared about seven feet tall, usually clothed in deep purple, sometimes clothed in red, sometimes clothed in gold, uh, purple and gold. Jet black hair, snow white skin, and the color of his eyes, instead of blue or brown or whatever, were deep violet, almost purple. When you're looking in them, it was like going down the Grand Canyon. It's just bottomless, this power. And Believe me, if he ever appeared to you, you'd know you were in his presence. The Illuminati's
1: plan to take over the world was written by, you'll you'll never guess this, Anne Rand. Uh... (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh (laughs) my my god! Yes. Um, And this is bizarre. So Todd is very anti-Anne Rand. He never actually names her. He calls her one of the mistresses of Philip Rothschild. Uh, And (laughs) yeah, so, and this is going to take even more working through. Uh, and he says that her 1100 page book Atlas Shrugged was a message targeted to all witches. So the only way we know that he's talking about Anne Rand is that he men- he does name drop Atlas Shrugged, but he doesn't. He just calls her a mistress or the mistress who wrote this book. The secret plan of Anne Rand... Uh, that is barely concealed, by the way, in the pages of her novel was to blow up oil fields and grain mills and trains in order to bankrupt uh, in order for billionaires to bankrupt their own companies and destroy the world's currency with only the elite, also known as the Illuminati surviving the vast economic collapse that they caused by destroying their own stuff.! Whew. Now, this is weird uh, because. Today our particularly American listeners will know that Ayn Rand is very popular among John who who, who loves Ayn Rand. Everyone. <laughs> not not this podcaster. <laughs> but what what um, I'm not going to say political party but political organization is most identified with her. Am I am I quizzing you
0: um a little bit? I don't know exactly. To be completely I, honest.
1: I thought by some of your Facebook posts that you were uh, at least aware of this conversation. The Libertarians.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. sure. Like, because there's a lot of different, like, non-mainstream groups that take some of her ideas. Like Libertarians, yes. oh, yeah. a little bit like Tea Party type stuff. Yeah.
1: And th- some some American conservatives in the Republican Party also are big Ayn Rand fans. Uh, so she makes for a strange inclusion in Todd's conspiracy for all of these reasons, because as we get to know Todd, we'll discover he's very libertarian in, in his ideology. Um, but Todd wasn't shy about attacking some of his audience's favorite things. So remember, he's talking to fundamentalist Christian congregations. Uh, specifically, the tapes that I listen to and the tapes that circulate are from his talks in this state in maryland and also in pennsylvania Uh, but he would attack televangelists popular televangelists like jerry falwell uh, and also popular movies and i think more in line with his audience's prejudices rock music yeah so but think about that right like he's speaking to fundamentalists and he's saying jerry falwell is you know satan worshiper (laughs) so we'll we'll get into all that (laughs) So it's difficult to say exactly who Todd means, though, going back to Philip Rothschild. The Rothschilds are an ethnically Jewish family of bankers dating back hundreds of years and are generally central to a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that Jews control the world economy. Todd doesn't generally trade in anti-Semitism, oddly enough. Or maybe not oddly enough. We'll give Todd the benefit of the doubt here. He's not much of an anti-Semite. He argues that the Rothschilds aren't actually Jewish. This, he says, is a cover for their real spiritual and ethnic identity, which is, which they are ethnically and racially, which. W i uh, t c h, which. How does the that... We'll get there. We'll get there. What's we'll
0: an, there. What's an eth- ethnic witch? Is it
1: there, how are you could be an ethnic witch. A witch? <laughs> Hold on to that question. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll get to it. Uh, <laughs> And they are the most, so the Rothschilds are then the most powerful ethnic witches in the world, regarded as gods by the rest of the witch Illuminati community. So, um, to this point, aside from what John and Brie and I have been doing sort of on the side here, I've tried to avoid in my direct commentary... tackling the veracity of any of Todd's claims here. But I I sort of have to take a moment here for Philip Uh, because (laughs) Philip's not going to come up again and let's just deal with it right now. And we'll forget about him by the time I get back to this. Uh, Because Philip is a little perplexing. Philip Rothschild, because there is no Philip Rothschild. As far as I can tell, (laughs) no such person has ever existed. Do you guys know of any Philip Rothschilds? (laughs) Have you ever met one?
2: Distinctly remember you coming into the green room and screaming at me, This man's <laughs> not real. What is he talking about?
1: <laughs> so, what I was able to find is that there was a man named Philippe Rothschild. A small but important distinction, especially yeah. for thinking about country of origin. Um, this is the closest name to Philip within the Rothschild family. Philippe lived at roughly the same time period as Ayn Rand. Uh, he was a vintner, uh, so a guy who makes wine. He was also oh, a playwright God. and a Grand Prix driver. Uh, and he produced the first French talkie, the first talking movie in French.
0: Huh. That's. That's a resume. Yeah. It's yeah.
1: It's, it's all pretty, pretty cool. Like, pretty he sounds good. like a neat guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, there is no evidence at all of him ever having had any contact with Ayn Rand. And it's it's sort of difficult to conceive of how Grand Prix driving is any sort of Illuminati conspiracy. It's <laughs> hard <Yeah, laughs> to draw the, the links there. I don't know there. about that. Uh, So Todd says, moving on from Philippe, he says he was able to go along with much of what the Illuminati witch cult was having him do, that is, until a packet of eight letters containing the Illuminati's secret master plan arrived, Uh, and they arrived not for Todd, but for his elder, Uh, John, what was that name I wanted you to remember? Ray- Raymond Buckland that's right Raymond Buckland yes, that's, that's what I said sorry I'm sorry if the mic didn't pick that up yep
2: John totally said that
3: oh okay I'll catch that later now in the first letter that we opened of those last two was a chart in that chart it listed an eight year step by step plan for world takeover and in in the December month of 1990 and since I've gotten out, I've not seen one thing fail or, or, or be delayed on that time chart. I'm not saying that it won't be delayed, but it is going to take a lot of serious Christians doing a lot of serious praying, which I've not yet seen. In the
1: eighth letter, the writers, presumably the Rothschild family, who are the masters of the Council of Thirteen, reveal that they found a man they believe to be the son of Lucifer. He was, Todd said, a demon possessed like no one had ever seen. Exclamation point. What does that mean? We're gonna, like it, no so one had ever seen. Uh, <laughs> Alright. So it just sounds so positive. Like <laughs> Oh, like oh yeah, it does sound like a demon possessed like like you've you've never seen a demon like the demon in this guy. He's got some demon. <laughs>
2: He's like like you've never seen before. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this demon'll knock like, your socks off.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So here's the weird thing about this man. If you spend as much time with Todd as I have, you'll notice that he doesn't often name this demon possessed man. But uh, it becomes one of the hallmarks of his theory that this son of Lucifer, who he also calls the Adam, is at the time President Jimmy Carter. (laughs) now, Jimmy Carter, uh, for those of you who are not students of 1970s presidential history, is generally regarded as one of the most religious presidents of the 20th century, if not the most God-fearing president we've ever had. Maybe he was just overcompensating.
2: It's yes, a lot of overcompensation.
1: <laughs> it's a good cover-up. Uh, Carter's sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton, is also a high priestess of witchcraft who personally instructed John Todd. Uh, Carter, the Rothschilds, and Charles Manson are all aligned in a single scheme to confiscate all of America's guns in order to pave the way for a mass murder of Christians.
2: Okay, so I love Charles Manson, so I cannot support that statement. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you don't want him taking our guns?
2: I can't support that he would be a part of that.
1: I mean, that this situation. is the libertarian thing gets odd, right? Because, you know, the take our guns. Ideology and and the bunker stuff that Todd is going to get into seems like it's you know right up the Libertarian's alley, and yet he's calling out Ann Rand the whole
3: time. Uh, it's very very strange stuff. Most people don't know how important it is that we not lose our constitutional right to own a gun. The Illuminati are not going to be able to start helter skelter unless uh, they can convince the people that they're not going to have to go from door to door, find their way down the street, to say burn and kill and rape and everything else. So they promised them that there'll be nothing existing in the form of guns in anybody's hands within the next year and a half.
1: It's important to keep in mind that Todd was a survivalist who carried a concealed handgun more or less all the time. In addition to stockpiling, I mean like into churches and stuff, he always yeah. had a handgun on him. Just in case Satan showed up. <laughs> you <laughs> you gotta pop know. him a couple times. You
2: gotta pull a gun on Satan.
1: <laughs> yes. Cause cause that's when Satan sneaks up Jimmy on Carter. you in church. <laughs> Uh, that's Carter. such a subversive statement, John, that you would have a gun with you in church for when Satan sneaks up on you.
0: I mean, yeah. You, like, never, you know. never
2: know.
1: <laughs> in addition not to not sure that would be my
2: reaction, but...
1: Well, oh, you wouldn't pull a gun on Satan?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> the disappointment in John's eyes when I said
1: that. Well, John's the one suggesting that good Christian churches are where Satan tends to hang out.
2: <laughs> yeah, you really are.
1: I mean, you know, <laughs> you got to be prepared. In addition to stockpiling assault weapons and hunting rifles, Todd suggested collecting and canning enough food to last for six months to a year. Which we probably should have done before the pandemic. Yeah. Right? So he not not bad advice. He gets another one. Two, two, two points for Todd. He advised Christians in the late 1970s that the Antichrist, who he wouldn't name, so actually Jimmy Carter is not the Antichrist. He's just, you know, the son of Lucifer. The Antichrist is another person. He's pretty close. Uh, uh, Should not be confused with the Christian peanut farmer, son of Lucifer, Jimmy Carter, would make his first appearance at the dawn of the age of Aquarius in 1980. So Jimmy Carter is important. He's like leading to the Antichrist, but he's not the Antichrist yet. On reading these revelations in the Rothschilds' letters to Buckland, Todd decides it's time to quit the Illuminati. He's like, oh no, this is too much for me. I'm out. He'd thought about quitting once before in the days following the murder of Sharon Tate. Uh, but this time, the drive to quit was much more urgent. We're going to get back to Sharon Tate and Manson. All this stuff is coming.
2: So, wh-
1: so he, so, yeah, so when the Illuminati mur- murdered Sharon Tate... He thought about quitting.
2: That wasn't initially enough. He was like, "I'm gonna wait a few months, you know." After that horrendous, like, criminal act that was committed, like, it was just take. Let's just take a few months, you know, and then I'll decide that out. it's too much. See what okay. happens.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. So, so now he's quit. He quit the Illuminati. This is it for him. He read this letter, all this stuff about, you know, the son of Lucifer and taking our guns and what have you. And he's got to get out of here. So he suffers a mental break uh, and he's mainlining crystal methadrine, also known as meth, uh, crystal blue persuasion. And at this low point in his life, he's visited by a Baptist preacher whose daughter just so happened to have taken up witchcraft. The pastor was distraught because he could not turn his child away from her pagan practice and began trying to convert any occultists he came across. How lucky. He stopped at the occult shop where Todd was working and witnessed to him, uh, you know, witnessing being this uh, evangelical practice of of sharing the story of how one was brought to belief in Christ, uh, and he attempted to save Todd. After his meeting with the preacher, Todd's drug dealer told him that the latest shipment of meth had been busted and he didn't have any meth for him. So uh, Todd's occult spirits fell silent quieted by todd's encounter with the preacher and he began aimlessly wandering until he found himself in a movie theater watching a film called the cross and the switchblade and on the way out of the movie a young man handed him a christian tract for those who had been bewitched i am right a series of odd events happening All, all these things happening at once Todd wanted to find a Christian ter- church to talk to a pastor about this state of affairs in his spiritual life, but he was afraid the Illuminati would notice. A prostitute witch, that is to say, a witch who is also a prostitute, uh, which, by the way, if you're keeping count, is the second prostitute witch in Todd's narrative so far told him uh, about a church being run out of a cafe that was giving her trouble in her business because I guess they kept turning her customers away from banging her this (laughs) right so that'll, that'll mess you up their customers were like, Yeah, can't wait to have sex with you, prostitute witch. I just want to stop and get a coffee. And then when they stopped and get a coffee, the coffee guy was like, Jesus. And they were like, Oh, I forgot all about him. I can't have sex with that witch now. I'm sorry, but that
2: would not stop me from having sex with the prostitute witch. <laughs> I'd get my coffee. I'd go right up, I'd go
1: right and meet her. You know, well, I'd probably bring her a coffee.
2: Yeah, you gotta bring her coffee. Maybe a nice latte. That's a tip,
1: you know? Yeah. it's a Christian thing to do. Uh, so, <laughs> this coffee church turned out to be the Castle Hills Baptist Church. At the request uh, of an the unnamed preacher whose daughter had turned to witchcraft, this Ch- Castle Hills Baptist Church just so happens to have been praying for Todd's deliverance. So this guy with his daughter troubles went over to this church because he met Todd, and they were like, can you pray for Todd? And they were like, okay, we'll pray for him. And then uh, at 2 a.m., uh, it just it, in the Castle Hills Baptist Church coffeehouse, uh, the manager was there fixing a soda fountain in a little cafe next to the church, and uh, he... And Todd just so happens to wander in. Uh, So he called the pastor of the church, the manager, and together they arranged a late night prayer session for members praying from home. And Todd was saved, brought to Jesus right then and there. Uh, And that's the end of Todd's experience with the Illuminati witch cult. Now, so I'm going to comment a second, and then we're going to get into it. Then we're going to start to unpack this. So that's basically the narrative he tells of his life with the Illuminati. Uh, it's, this is not, we still have to get into all his ideas about what the Illuminati does and its influence on the culture, but, but that's his personal experience. So Todd's vision of the Illuminati conspiracy uh, is what I'd like to call a pastiche My Western theater students are familiar with this concept of pastiche, uh, which is a joining together of disparate elements from different conspiracy theories and popular culture into a plot that has the semblance, if not the substance, of a coherent plot. So, uh, this is a concept I'm going to be using to analyze Todd throughout. So, I'm going to take a little bit of time to to define it. A simple definition of pastiche is the joining together of images, texts, sounds, or in this case, ideas based on form rather than content uh, all right so in order to really help you uh, our listeners understand uh you guys follow me so far do you remember this remember me teaching this yeah <laughs> okay. yeah i remember this. Uh, yes. so i'm going to start with a counter example of a thing that isn't a pastiche and then i'll give you an example of a thing that is so a counter example of something is not a pastiche uh from this podcast we've discussed anton lave and also michael aquino uh We discuss them in the same episode uh, on Satanism because they belong to the same organization, the Church of Satan, and they developed separate practices with philosophical similarities because of this substantive connection. So when I take LeVay and Aquino and I decide to put them together, this is not a pastiche because there is a historical substantive reason to consider them as connected a pastiche might join together Michael Aquino and, for example, Eugene Levy. You guys know this guy from American Pie? He's on uh, that show Shits Creek now. You know what I'm talking about? No. I, Eugene Levy. He's in the Christopher Guest movies.
2: I think I remember who you're talking about. I have honestly no clue. <laughs> yeah, I think before. I know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> Eugene Levy. He's
2: yeah. American
1: Pie. He's yeah. the dad on American Pie. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if I wanted to put together Michael Aquino and Eugene Levy, <laughs> our listeners are screaming. Our listeners in their 30s are screaming. Uh, <laughs> you guys don't know Eugene Levy. I do. John <laughs>
2: it, just doesn't.
1: John. Well, in fairness to John, he doesn't know many pop culture things. This is right? very true.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so Schitt's Creek is actually a pretty good show. It's Canadian. It's a Canadian show.
2: I think my mom watched it.
1: Does it? Yeah. I think Eugene Levy's Canadian, actually. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, if I put so if I put Michael Aquino and Anton LaVey together, that is not a pastiche. But if I put Michael Aquino and Eugene Levy together, because they both have funky eyebrows, uh, <laughs> that that is a pastiche. Unlike Aquino and LeVe, the eyebrows are the only point of contact between Aquino and Levy. There's no other reason to put these two guys together, as far as we know. As far as we right well, pairing LeVay uh, and Darth Vader because they both wear black capes or have shiny heads, uh, which Todd actually kind of does in outline, if not in detail, is also a kind of pastiche. Do you see, like Levey and Darth Vader technically have nothing to do with each other, but it's true, they both have shiny heads and they both wear capes. Mm. So (laughs) I could pair them side by side. uh, But that amounts to a sort of pastiche way of thinking. We see it a lot in art. Banksy does a lot of pastiche. And uh, there's a lot of it in like modern adult cartoons. And pastiche is sort of everywhere in our culture. But Todd is using it to make a point. uh, And the point is the problem. All right. Let's talk about... So now that we've, you know drawn up this, invoked this concept of pastiche, let's go ahead and talk about it in relation to Todd's theories on the Illuminati's influence on our culture. Chapter 2, The Cultural Illuminati. Pastiche runs rampant in Todd's attacks on American culture. Popular culture, the hippie counterculture, and a hidden elite within organizations like the Freemasons and the Charismatic Christians are the three pillars of Todd's imagined enemy. In the realm of popular culture, he attacked television broadly, claiming that three of the major networks were run by witches. This was back when there were only like five or six networks on TV. You know, the 70s, they didn't have cable or... The internet?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Uh, uh, so, but, you know, like three-fourths of television was controlled by the Illuminati. Also, soap operas were a form of occult persuasion for adults. Back in the heyday of the soap opera, 70s, 80s, 90s, when, you know, that's what you watched at three o'clock in the afternoon. Do people still do that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, people do. What What,
1: what are the soap operas? Do you know? What What do we... Um,
2: it's things like... They're still
1: General Hospital...
2: I think one of the closest things that people would get would be like Grey's Anatomy or something like that. But there's other things. It's soapy. Yeah. There's other things like that. Like, I know Amazon Prime, a lot of their own stuff that they make is very soap opera Like Like, yeah. it's bad.
1: A little bit of melodrama. Yeah. Anyway, that's all occult persuasion, just so you know. Uh, John, are you a Star Wars fan? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I'm also yeah. a Star Wars fan. But he asked me, so... Well, I'm I mean, this is one of John's few cultural references. I think he can get that all right. True. So, in the movie theater, John he went for he went for George Lucas. He went after your man, uh, Star Wars. He said was the biggest thing that witchcraft had ever done to spread its doctrine. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong.
0: What? <laughs> he's saying he's right, but he's not wrong,
1: all right. But this is going to get. I bet this will bother you, John, because I'm going to quote. Todd direct. Okay, I'm ready to be bothered. In the movie, he said, they say, and may the force be with you till we're apart. No. Does that sound accurate? (laughs) No. (laughs) Which he says, is what witches say when they greet and part from each other. Isn't that like, (laughs) may the Lord be with you and also with you? Isn't that more like the speed of what's happening? Yes, but it's It's may the force and may the force be with you till we're apart. I can just picture Yoda saying it. I can hear it right now.
2: (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs)
1: So the force itself was the neutral supernatural force, which is manipulated for various ends. The force in the movie. Uh, and characters like Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, Star Wars used to promote the false idea that there was such a thing as white magic. Because these were supposed to be good guys who use the magic force to do good guy things. So this is all a lie. Everyone who participated in the production, by the way, John, was actually a practicing witch. So we're talking about the actors and directors and screenwriters and special effects people. Everyone was a witch. The whole team in their private lives were witches.
2: Does he realize how many people are involved in the making of those movies?
1: Yeah, this it, it, it's probably it's a few hundred, right? Wouldn't you think? It's, isn't that a, about... Yeah. Easily.
2: It, easily, definitely. Easily.
1: Uh, so all all witches, one hundred percent witch, is what we're t- looking at. Even the key boy grip—that's a witch. Uh, the pastiche. <laughs> let me okay. So let me get to my pastiche here. The pastiche is hard at work uh, in this idea. Star Wars and witches both use a magical force. Therefore, Star Wars is of and about witches. Even if this comparison falls apart when you start drilling down to the details, the conspiracy theorist, John Todd in this case, doesn't care. So what if they don't say, till we're apart, <laughs> they do say the Force thing? Uh, and so what if the plot directly opposes an Illuminati-style one world, or in this case, one universe, government? Right? Think about the plot of Star Wars. It's about a one universe government having its big starship blown up. <laughs> so... Yep it's like a new world order in reverse. Uh so that's just the Illuminati hiding its agenda. Like Jimmy Carter pretending to be Christian. Does that mean the Illuminati are Jedi? Uh yes, the Jedi are Illuminati but also Darth Vader. They're all they're all just Illuminati. Anyone who believes Everybody in the force and practices in the Star
2: force Wars is the Illuminati. May the Illuminati
1: be with you. Oh my god. Till we part. Not that guy who Darth Vader finds his faith lack of faith disturbing. That guy, he's not in the Illuminati. No. Because he has a lack of faith. Because oh, he couldn't yeah. do the force. everybody else. No. Nah. Yeah. yeah. Everybody else is. All those forcey guys, they are way in the Illuminati. The because it's the Illuminati is a witch cult. I mean, that's what we can't I can't drive home enough. In John Todd's version of this, the Illuminati equals witch cult. That's what it is. There aren't any other things in the Illuminati but the witch cult. Or the witch cult is rather in charge of the whole operation. So it's all witch cult by default. The pastiche level connection is what this whole thing is all about. Oh yeah, the audience says. Witches and Skywalkers are kind of alike, even though they really have nothing to do with each other. And by audience, I mean John Todd's audience. They see the connection even though it's just a surface connection. Best-selling books, he said, are tantamount to occult books. He says, and I quote: "Bestsellers that are ju- uh, that are just descriptions of pornography books, so Doubleday can make an extra buck."
2: I'm sorry, what?
1: Yeah, this is a this is exactly what he says. Bestsellers. He uses the word that that doesn't really belong, but bestsellers are just descriptions of pornography books. So they're not pornography books, but they they're books that describe other books that are pornography books.
2: Um. Oh my God.
1: But wait, there's more. Oh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, popular authors like immensely popular authors mm-hmm. among Christians the worldwide, are both members of the Illuminati, whose books are designed to lead people away from Christianity and toward witchcraft.
0: Ah, uh, yes, because the witches fare so well in all of C.S. Lewis's books.
1: I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it always starts with somebody dropping a house on one of them, right? different guy. The Illuminati also <laughs> own retail stores. Sorry. Uh, I mean, I guess in Tolkien the witches don't do so bad. I mean, the wizards but it comes out okay yeah. for them. Oh, except for that one in the Two Towers. Except mm. for except for
0: the ones without the beards. Like the nice beards. <laughs> the
1: unbearded ones. <laughs>
2: if they don't have a nice beard.
1: They yeah. Don't. <clears throat> okay. So Here's another thing. Now, this is going to be less meaningful to us because I'm going to name a bunch of retail stores from the 70s. And I don't even think we're going to have retail stores in like six months. And that's I guess that's not funny. But anyway, the Illuminati own retail stores. So maybe we're better off without them. These include Gold Circle, Kmart, Lazarus, Federal Department Stores, Sears, Montgomery Wards and Mobile Oil.
2: I think I remember you telling me about this now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Kmart. Is Kmart still in business or did they go under as well? I think
2: it's still... I think still, I've seen one. I've seen one. Maybe. They were sort
1: of on the rocks before the pandemic, so yeah. They've Good for them. Been, I think. Hang in there, Kmart. Credit cards are a dry run for a security card that will be issued in order to track people's movements and habits. Now, this is the 70s, and the use of credit cards is really starting to ramp up in the 1970s. Before then, you really were paying for most things with cash. Um, So, you know, he's sort of attacking the new stuff. Imagine what he'd say about, like, Venmo or PayPal. Oh, he would have (laughs) such a time talking about that. Our Facebook accounts, right? Yeah. Yeah his definition of the american illuminati visits familiar ground the trilateral council on the council of foreign relations are the american illuminati but the root of the american plot is the freemasons another very familiar conspiratorial face who we talked about at length just in our last episode todd mentions albert pike who was by no fault of his own made into the center of the imagined masonic scheme in the toxial hoax also from last episode which was targeted as uh, a secret occultist organization in Edith Star Miller's uh, occult theocracy. The prominent Confederate officer turned Freemason Albert Pike ran the Illuminati in this in Todd's version of events, uh, as well as the Masons. Uh, and in 1776, he did this. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sorry, and he came up with the idea of inventing a political party to frighten the world and keep them from fighting each other. All right, so I I want to repeat just one more time uh, for our, our our listeners who might be doing something else, like I don't know, feeding your baby or baking bread. He says that Albert Pike, let me let me repeat my description of Pike, a Confederate officer turned Freemason. Now, for those of you who aren't students of American history, uh, John, could you tell us roughly when the Civil War happened? That was eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five. Very nice. Uh, and he says that my my man Albert Pike was running the Illuminati in 1776. Huh? Yes. Right. Uh, this is. Uh, we're going to see this again and again in Todd's theories that there are these just like a failure to see things through. He seems to like have this breadth of knowledge, and he really does know about a whole lot of stuff. But his knowledge is cursory at best, and results in a whole lot of nonsense. Like this Albert Pike idea.
0: Could be Albert Pike Sr. Maybe, I yeah. I don't think so, John. Uh, so. They were both Confederate generals. <laughs> it's, the maybe. 1776 Confederacy.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> the Confederacy of 1776. Yes. All right. Uh, so now <laughs> this is why I do episodes in series like we've done. Uh, and and now the fact that I've been working in a, in a cult conspiracy theory series bears a bit of fruit for us. Unless you knew the relatively obscure history of the toxial host uh, hoax, uh, cursory research into Albert Pike would seem to prove Todd's point. Pike was a prominent Mason, co- chronology aside, and there are conspiracy theorists who wrote about his inclusion in a secret Masonic plot. But... As we know from the last episode, it was all an elaborate prank invented by the French anti-clericist Gabriel-Jorgon Pages, also known as Leotaxil. Conspiracy theory can be compared to a game of telephone, uh, but that's actually not entirely fair. It's more like what we used to call yellow journalism. Edith Starr-Miller passed on the Pike theory and either ignored or failed to adequately research the fact that it was, from its inception, entirely made up. And Todd picked it up either from Miller or someone who's read someone who's read Miller because it sounds good. It's sensational. It's fun. It works well enough for what he chooses to preach. So screw it if it's a lie. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to do the research. Nobody listening to him anyway. Right. Yeah. They're sitting there like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, I put those pieces together. Absolutely. I'm with this man. This is just like conspiracy accusations against America's founding fathers, who, pastiche style, founded a country the same year that Adam Weishaupt founded the Illuminati, what we've been talking about earlier. We're really dealing with a collage here, not a reasonable argument. By bringing the historical Illuminati and America's founding fathers onto the same piece of construction paper using the link 1776, we can draw our own conclusions. But the construction paper, which is to say the year 1776, that connecting point, is really the only connecting point. It's the eyebrows. Just the eyebrows. There's no other reason these things should go together. There is no documentary evidence whatsoever that Hamilton, Jefferson, or Washington had any contact with Weishaupt.
3: John Adams wrote George Washington asking him to beware Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton and their misuse of the Masonic lodges, which Washington was a member of because he was using it. And this is a direct quote. He was using it for Illuminati purposes for the worship of Lucifer. Charismatic Christians are much like the Masons. Todd
1: blames them for constructing megachurches like the Melodyland Christian Center in Anaheim, which was not far from Disneyland uh, and which took over a concert venue, also called Melodyland before it became the Melodyland Christian Center, uh, and became a significant uh, gathering place for the Jesus movement. Todd says that he personally carried checks to Melodyland written by the Illuminati's Council of Thirteen when he was one of those thirteen. So, in other words, the Melody Land Christian Center, which has the word Christian in its name, is being secretly funded by the Illuminati. Todd knows, because when he was on the Illuminati, he paid them. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Todd distrusts the accumulation of wealth and resources in the hands of a single organization, and uses the Illuminati to criticize megachurches and their pastors.
3: Look at even Christian churches within Bible-believing denominations. There's a couple of, quote, Jesus people, garbage churches that began a few years in L.A. and Costa Mesa and had a few hundred kids. All of a sudden, the pastor is moving into a half-million-dollar home and the churches are taking donations out of armored cars. Now, where they get the funds to buy a $2 million building overnight? They were preaching gospel. Now, now they're preaching trash. I'm, I'm really, like, totally
1: with him on this. <laughs> <laughs> I also have real problems with megachurches and their pastors, um, but maybe they're an easy target. But I think it's fascinating that he goes after them since he is doing this whole Christian thing and, and he knows it's going to be controversial with his audiences. Yeah, he's so weird. Todd targets a host of big name Christian pastors, including Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary uh, Baptist uh, Cav- Cavalry Chapel Movement, uh, which includes some of the largest churches in the United States, uh, also the Full Gospel Businessman's Fellowship, which is a Pentecostal organization with over 300,000 members, and the Southern Baptist televangelist and co-founder of Liberty University, who we mentioned a bit earlier, Jerry Falwell. Whew. That brings us to today's word that you might have been wondering about. And that word is Charismatic.
2: What's Charismatic that?
1: Christians <laughs> You ready for that?
2: <laughs> was that the word I was wondering about? Because I feel like I've been wondering about like a lot of other words
1: well, I'm going to give you two words, actually There's a bonus word in here, so we'll see We'll see if that, okay. that gets you But if you have any other words, Brie, feel free to bring them up Let's talk about the charismatics. So charismatic Christians believe in the work of the Holy Spirit to perform miracles through believers. They span denominations with both Catholic and Protestant believers, but they are a minority among Christians. Some of the practices associated with charismatics include laying on of hands healing, speaking in tongues, and prophecy. For an anti-occultist like John Todd, these practices are strikingly similar to the witchcraft magic he'd abandoned. Now I'm going to give you that bonus word. A bonus word you might have been wondering about uh, is the Jesus movement. Is this it? No, <laughs> this I was the I'm
2: still wor- worrying about ethnic witches.
1: Oh. <laughs> okay, well, better... I'm still... <laughs> I I will get there, but that's later. That's coming later. Okay. Okay. Bonus word you might have been wondering about, the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement. Was the Do you, do you know anything about the Jesus movement, John? Like the specifically
0: Jesus movement? It sounds it sounds like a much larger thing.
1: It was actually a counterculture movement, um, so it was part of the 1960s. The Jesus Freaks is what they were called, uh. and it was, their, it was their answer to the hippies. So they dressed like hippies, they acted like hippies, um, except they had a Christian message. So it was Jesus Christ Superstar. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it was all, yeah, it was sort of that moment. I think Jesus Christ Superstar is the sort of popularization of what was really a popular movement unto itself but yeah it was the christian answer to hippies okay
0: that makes sense uh
1: they believed in living as jesus did uh which looked a lot like living like hippies in their eyes Uh, They practiced communal living, also faith healing, much like the charismatics, and they de-emphasized churches in favor of more itinerant styles of worship. If you read the Gospels, yeah, it's not not too shabby. That is closer to how Jesus actually lived than, you know, your standard organized church. Their ministry naturally involved a lot of outreach to counterculture hippies in an effort to convert them into Jesus freaks rather than, you know, the pansexual lsd freaks that they were
0: regular freaks
1: yeah i'm talking broadly here a lot of hippies were not involved in that stuff they just went to woodstock and uh i don't know smoked some pot that's the that's the end of the that's that's the word that's the word you may have been wondering about plus one today all right here we go todd distrusts any organization and any individual that accumulates wealth, fame, wealth, fame, or power. I'm with him. I can't say I disagree at all. The corruption in megachurches and preachers of prosperity theology is a well-known cultural trope. Especially if you watch The Righteous Gemstones. It's right out there for you. Uh, you guys watch that show? No. no. Uh, you should check it out. Uh, Righteous Gemstones. Uh, but Todd okay. is no socialist, as we see with his next target— Todd's deep reservations about the counterculture say more about his fundamentalism than his radical politics. So he's always, he's he's in lots of different areas. Very unique thinker. Um, still a horrible person, don't get me wrong, but it's That's unique the different attitudes he takes. Unique thinker is one way to put it. Yeah, I, I know, I know. I, I, it's, it, his ideas are so interesting and all over the yeah. place that it's difficult not to sound like you're praising him for it, but he, he is... We're going to find out he's, he's pretty horrible, yeah. if you haven't already, if you're, if, you're, if you're not a Star Wars fan or a C.S. Lewis fan or a Tolkien fan, and you already think he's horrible. The peace symbol is not a peace symbol, he says. So now Now we're, I want to get to his attacks on the counterculture.
0: Oh, wait, wait, is, is it like, uh, I think I've heard something like this before, where it like, you know, how it's like the line with the two diagonal lines coming off of it. It's kind of like a broken yes.
1: cross, sort of. Ah, yes. Beautiful. Thank you. Yes. Wow. It symbolizes a rejection of the Christian church. So, yeah. Can you picture it, Brie? The cross turned upside down and then you break the arms. Wow. So the broken cross is actually the name of the first comic uh, that John Todd inspired of Jack Chicks uh, in which part of the ritual is the breaking of a cross. But we'll get there in the next episode. So, uh, the use of hallucinogens, a hallmark of, of the hippie movement, he describes as a form of sorcery, even if the user has no occult intentions. Charles Manson, the underbelly of the counterculture, is at the center of Todd's effort to pull the counterculture into the same collage with the Charismatics, the Freemasons, Star Wars, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and soap operas. Oh. All these people are part of the same conspiracy, remember? He tells his audience, so now it's time for Manson. Brie, you ready for this? Put on your Manson pants. We're going for it.
2: They're already on.
1: (laughs) Are they always on? (laughs)
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) He tells his audience that Charles Manson has united the prisoners from coast to coast in a mass army. When the Illuminati, quote, turn the lights out in New York... Uh, it will be to launch the revolution, uh, and this army of prisoners will suddenly rise up, striking air traffic controllers. So, air traffic controllers going on strike, also longshoremen going on strike, will bring transit to a halt. Striking air traffic controllers could also be very attractive. Air traffic controllers, what a yes, striking! That's air what I was controller. thinking,
2: and I was very confused <laughs> until you clicked. The, the
1: planes will crash into the into the <laughs> tower because they're so drawn by how beautiful the air traffic controllers are. And the boats will crash into the docks because the longshoremen will be so attractive. The ultimate
2: (laughs) ultimate attack on our transport.
1: So these guys are all going to go on strike. Transit's going to come to a halt. The prisoners are taking over New York. The lights are out. Former Green Berets and Navy SEALs uh, are are at this, well, as Todd is speaking in 1978, training uh, prisoners at a camp in West Virginia. Gun laws will take guns out of the hands of citizens so that Manson's army can take over. So when they come for you, you won't have your gun to shoot them. They just shoot you or, you know, get you to do whatever they want. Some creepy Manson thing. Also, Bree, name a creepy Manson thing. Um, what will he make us do when he comes to our house?
2: Um, take a bunch of belladonna root and then let us live with it for the rest of our lives and then force <laughs> us to murder an entire household ouch and then okay. claim that he didn't do it
1: what a busy day we're gonna have to do that house by house <laughs> yes uh okay so laws uh, will be passed to prevent people from storing food to survive for longer than a month so again the government can keep control on us i currently have an enormous bag of flour that i assume the government will come and requisition from me uh Todd says that Manson, uh, who actually died serving a life sentence in a California prison in 2017, uh, would be released two years from the time Todd was speaking in 1978. Again, the year 1980 looms
3: large for Todd as the beginning year of Armageddon. I I know, Mason. He's an old buddy of mine. I know what went on. And it wasn't a mass killing. It was a contract killing.
1: I refuse to
2: believe it.
3: He also knew the
1: Beatles. Todd did not believe that Tex Watson, who was convicted of killing Sharon Tate, was really a born again Christian. Tex was a member of the Illuminati, says Todd, and as such, if he was really born again, the Illuminati would simply murder him in jail. Sharon Tate was an Illuminatus who had been targeted for her attempt to quit the organization before the birth of her baby, and that's why the Illuminati killed her.
2: I'm screaming inside. <laughs>
1: Chapter 3, Charles Q. Manson. Q stands for Quincy.
2: (laughs) Okay,
1: so the Manson theme. So getting back to Manson, Charles Manson was the living embodiment of John Todd's personal demons. Like Manson, Todd had a criminal talent for seducing teenage girls, a proclivity Todd was, for obvious reasons, inclined to keep hidden. And Manson was a rising acolyte and sometime participant in the music business that Todd blamed for the demonic seduction of America's youth. Interestingly, they would both meet very similar ends. In 2007, 10 years before Manson's death, Todd would die a ward of the state before serving out the duration of a 30-year sentence for a violent crime. So I, I, I want to compare these two guys. I, I feel like they're uh, Manson, Todd sort of picks up as a kind of alter ego. Although many of our, so that in other words, that's why Manson keeps coming up. He he's obsessed you. with Manson because he sees himself in Manson. He's a, he's like a mirror image of Todd. I
2: can kind of see it.
1: Yeah, and he really is. He's like he's dark Todd. Yeah, but Todd is also his own dark Todd. Yeah, Todd's so,
2: not doing great. Yeah, I mean,
1: he's, and in 1978, like he's playing light Todd, yeah. but. In order to play Light Todd, he has to pick on Dark Todd, and Manson is sort of like that mirror image of Dark Todd. Yeah. It's like
0: Anakin and Darth Vader. Oh, my God.
1: Although many of our listeners are probably familiar with Charles Manson, much like Brie, uh, I'd rather not take it for granted that everyone knows Manson's claim to fame. I won't go into detail, but uh, if y'all will were, were permit me, I'm just going to do a brief outline. Manson ran a small co- commune uh, that he'd relocated from San Francisco to Los Angeles in the late 1960s. According to scholar Jeffrey Melnick, who's my main source uh, for for what I'm going to say about Manson today, Bobby Beausoleil had his own group in Los Angeles that he ended up joining up with Manson's group when Manson's family moved to the Spahn Ranch, which was a former movie studio set in southwest uh, Los Angeles County. So far so good, Brie? Yes. Beausoleil... I think the only controversial point in there is that Beausoleil had his own group and that he linked them up, but yeah. there, there's a reasonable amount of evidence that that's true, mm-hmm. that Bosley was not all on his own, but he was he was a charismatic guy unto himself, Bobby Beausoleil, So Yeah. Uh, so, Bosley was staying with UCLA PhD student Gary Hinman. As a former PhD student myself, I, I weep big tears for Gary Hinman here uh, when he met Manson. Manson became convinced that Hinman had money and property. Anyone who's been a Ph.D. student knows none of us have money or property. Uh, And Manson persuaded Beausoleil along with fellow family member Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins to try and get uh, the Ph.D. student Hinman to join his family with a capital F. Hinman refused because he's a Ph.D. student. He knows better. Uh, And Beausoleil, Brunner and Atkins held him hostage for two days Manson finally arrived and sliced his ear with a sword, so bizarre, and instructed Beausoleil yeah. on how to stage Hinman's murder. Any things about that, Brie?
2: No, I just, this is because, so I did a presentation on Charles Manson a while back, and literally the next day was the day he died, but it was really weird. But, um, like, I talked about all this stuff, so I'm just remembering it all, and it's so weird. Like, yeah, the Hinman so, stuff the is sword. so weird.
1: Yeah. So on the 27th of July, 1969, Beausoleil stabbed Hinman repeatedly and then took turns with Adkins and Brunner smothering him with a pillow, ultimately killing him. So brutal, brutal way to die. Yeah. It's like multiple ways of of uh, killing and uh, maiming him. Uh, Bosley then wrote political piggy on the wall in Hinman's blood which ultimately inspired prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi's controversial but still dominant theory that Manson was trying to start a race war. Is that am I saying that right Bugliosi?
2: Um, you're probably good enough.
1: All right, close. Close enough. Cuz there's a pronunciation yeah. that he he really hated Bugliosi. Bugliosi. I don't know. There was the I defense think... attorney I think for Manson kept calling him this other by this other pronunciation really pissed him off. Mm. Anyhow, Uh, Beausoleil was arrested on the 6th of August, and three days later, Manson orchestrated uh, the Tate-LaBianca murders. Family members Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel murdered Sharon Tate, who was then eight and a half months pregnant, along with three friends and another visitor at the house she rented, along with the movie director Roman Polanski at... I don't. I've been trying to figure out how to pronounce this. Ten thousand fifty Cielo Drive. How is this ever? It's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's hard to pronounce address, that number as just... an address, but it is ten thousand fifty yeah. Cielo Drive. Yeah. Okay. I don't. How is it said in other things? <laughs> just That's the Cielo pretty much. I'm I pretty often sure hear the Cielo Drive house. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Ten thousand fifty. Manson's commune on the Spahn Ranch was full of young runaway women who joined Manson's makeshift family. Whether or not Manson's girls were there of their own accord is not a question we can solve today, but from the perspective of the American public, analyzing Manson in the wake of the Tate-LaBianca murders, his relationship with these women was not in their best interest. The family that Manson created with them was a kind of travesty of American family relationships. Manson and his crew didn't use the word family. It was actually projected onto them after the murders, but they functioned much like a family unit, with Manson as the head, as a kind of father, substituting for the fathers of the girls and women he took in. In many cases, these girls had run away from home. His sexual relationships with the various women in his commune then took on incestuous undertones. It's not a far leap to suggest that Manson was taking advantage of these women's vulnerability and need for companionship in order to create a culture of group sex. So far, so good? Yep. Melnick disputes Manson Prosecutor Bugliosi's claim that the Tate-LaBianca murders were an attempt to instigate a race war. Rather, it was out of loyalty and love for Beausoleil. By committing the second set of murders while Beausoleil was in jail, the Manson family hoped it would convince the police that Beausoleil was not guilty of the murder of Gary Hinman. Do you say sort of like a, is that a false flag operation? I don't know what that is. I don't <laughs> Some kind of operation.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so it was a deep, dark expression of a kind of familial love that culminated in the murder of a pregnant woman and her unborn baby, also for innocent strangers. Manson's non-traditional family not only recommended him to Todd's darker nature, it also made Manson a perfect candidate for a wide-scale Illuminati plot in the eyes of the more credulous members of the congregations that John Todd spoke to. Conservative Christians with their focus on the family would find Manson's sexually deviant deviant, homicidal family unit a direct threat to their way of life, and his associations with the hippie counterculture would only prove their point about how dangerous and destructive the hippie lifestyle, with its promiscuous sex and recreational drugs and communal living, truly was. For his part, Todd was doing something very similar with the women in his occult bookshop, taking advantage of his presumed authority to convince them to perform naked rituals. Despite his protestations, either as a Wiccan through the auspices of Isaac Bonowitz's Aquarian Anti-Defamation League or as a representative of the Christian Underground, an organization that may or may not have existed, Todd was a convicted sexual predator several times over. Yeah. Like Manson. There was also a similar trajectory of escalating violence. In the Christian Coffee House in 1973, at least two women said that their relationship with Todd was consensual. At the Occult Bookshop in 1976, at least one teenage girl said that she had been forced into oral sex. And in 1987, Todd was convicted of raping a South Carolina graduate student at Knife Point. What are we on? Chapter four? Is this chapter four?
2: Um, I, The last thing I think you said was chapter three.
1: That would make this chapter four. Yes. The music industry. Todd made uh, his connection to Manson explicit uh, in his attacks on the music industry. Manson is often considered a failed musician. Is that how you, how you describe him, Brie?
2: Yes and no. (laughs) So if you ever actually listen to his music, it's not bad. It's actually enjoyable, Um, especially the song that the Beach Boys stole and turned into one of their biggest hits. But that's besides the point.
1: A famous, a very famous person is about to agree with you. Uh, And I'm not talking about me Uh, because I'm not very famous. I'm internationally known. Not internationally famous. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's start with Terry Melcher. Uh, he was the previous occupant of the Cielo Drive house where Sharon Tate and her guests were murdered. He was also a record producer who had rejected Manson's efforts to become a recording musician. Uh, but as Bree's pointing out, Manson was a little bit more than just a failed musician. He did have legitimate ties to the Los Angeles music scene. Manson's girls camped out at the home of Beach Boy Dennis Wilson for months. Wilson, Yeah, they did. Paid to have Susan Atkins' teeth fixed. And mm-hmm. the Beach Boys even recorded, as, as Bree points out, a song that Manson wrote. Uh, it was their song, Never Learn Not to Love, which was the B-side of their single, Bluebirds Over the Mountain. Not huge hits for the Beach Boys, but still. Yeah. <laughs> they, they recorded a Manson song.
2: His song, I'm pretty sure, it was originally called Cease to Exist. You can look it up. It's actually pretty good.
1: Cease to Love, yes. Yes. Cease to Love. That was pretty good, though. That's a good memory. (laughs) Uh, Okay, now here's that famous person. And Manson played with Neil Young. He played with Neil Young enough for the Canadian rocker to vouch for his talent and promote Manson to Moe Austin, then president of Warner Brothers Records. So, uh, Manson really does have more legitimate ties to the music scene than I think people realize. In his sermons, Todd said that rock music is written by witchcraft believers. He claimed to be personal friends with counterculture celebrities David Crosby and Graham Nash, the front two names on Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I guess the front, the odd number names, one and three. They cast spells over their songs to make them hits, he said. Todd recounted how Elton John made the statement that he had never penned a song that was not written in witch language. And that's why his songs are incomprehensible unless you're a witch and get high.
2: <laughs> I don't think that's why they're incomprehensible, Rob. I,
1: I don't I don't actually know how this logic applies to a song like The Bitch's Back, for example. That's pretty on the table. Yeah, uh, it's- but, you know, Benny and the Jets, like, who knows what the hell he's saying in Benny and the Jets. So I, I see Todd's point there. Yeah. Uh, but the larger point about Elton John, and, and I do like Elton John's music, uh, is that Elton John actually didn't write his own lyrics. Uh, so... Todd yeah. wasn't, must have not been referring to Elton John, but rather Bernie Taupin, who did write Elton John's lyrics. Elton John has always written the music. Taupin has always written his lyrics. Um, but to return to the concept of pastiche, the conspiracy theorist is only ever interested in the surface of things. The detail that Elton John didn't write his own lyrics and so couldn't have spoken to how comprehensible or incomprehensible they are make Todd seem uninformed. And that hardly matters. It hardly matters to the conspiracy he's suggesting. It's all pastiche. Rock music is still evil, even if he's never heard of Bernie Toppin. Every rock record, says Todd, like the toy
3: in a box of Cracker Jack comes complete with a demon. Now that means when you go and buy an album and you take it home with you, it is just like buying a box of Cracker Jacks. You get a free surprise, too. It's called a demon
1: allowing children to listen to rock music invites lucifer into the home and can ruin a house's finances or cause the members to catch a cold occasionally have you been catching colds lately (laughs) if so you might have a demon um, that came through your rock records you would never get sick if you kept lucifer away from you a literal thing todd believes Country music is not any better. I'm with him there, uh, with its focus on yeah. lust and drinking and fighting. It's
2: I can't I can't argue with him on that one.
3: Yeah.
0: Do do the demons have a southern accent for country music though?
1: <laughs> demons like the twang. <laughs>
0: <sighs> it's Satan.
1: <laughs> oh, that hurts. It's <laughs> <That's>
2: painful. <laughs>
1: The rock music is used to underscore witchcraft ceremonies and the movement to create Jesus rock, what we call Christian rock today, is just as pernicious because it is not what is sung. It is the music itself that corrupts the soul and leads good Christians astray. So even if you set an Elton John song, uh, you replace the bitch with Jesus. Jesus is back. That's still bad because it's the music itself that's conveying the demon. So all that but wasn't
0: there. Like wasn't there like the devil's note or something like that.
1: Yeah, it carries yeah. The, the demon in it. So you know jars of clay and whatever, no good. What what is what's a contemporary Christian rocker? Do you guys know? I know not nothing the, not about
0: current that. ones. No.
1: Well, how about like early two thousands? <laughs> Do you
0: know any? Oh, Falling Up or Lion K, Family Force Five. Like I got. You. Oh, there
1: you go. Thank you. There you go. Those yeah. guys, demon purveyors. Mm. FYI, among the most powerful musical compositions in the world of popular music is, of course, the Beatles' White Album, which oh serves as a book of prophecy for witches. The White Album brings us back to a familiar theme. Can you guess where I'm going, Brie? Yep. Charles Manson. It holds a mm-hmm. special place in Todd's fearmongering mongering because of its association to Manson, who instructed Watson and Atkins to write helter skelter in blood at 10,050 C L O drive i think they actually misspelled it
2: they did misspell it yeah helkers that's one of the funny. that's like one of the things yeah. that's pointed out the most about it is they didn't spell it right
1: right which means that they did not have much of an understanding or connection to the beatles in any way whatsoever exactly Anyhow, in Todd's narrative, Helter Skelter is the name of the Illuminati's plot to unleash chaos on the American public and conduct a mass genocide of America's Christians. It's not the race war that Bugliosi claimed it was. It's this other war, this war on America's Christians taking their guns and their canned goods in this way. Manson haunts most, if not all, of Todd's cultural critique as an alter ego of the man himself, secretly violent, falsely benevolent, sexually overdetermined, and desperate for attention. That's all I have to say about that. In fact, this is the end of part one of two about John Todd and the Illuminati witch cult. In our next episode, we will try and uncover the man underneath the legends and conspiracies John Todd spun about and around himself. Was John Todd an occultist? Or was he a fundamentalist? Was it possible for him to be both? And what happened to John Todd after the apocalypse failed to arrive in 1980? Had he really been shot at by Illuminati agents? And was he running a retreat for escaped Illuminati witches in an undisclosed location funded by the fundamentalist congregations he preached to? These answers and more on our next installment. But first, this gong. Let's do the Order of Confessors. All right, we heard from N 27 We're bringing joy to Reagan in these uncertain times, and Reagan has just discovered us. Welcome welcome to the crew of listeners, the uh, confessors there, Reagan. Uh, one more thing i got to say while we're in our order of confessors. Our Facebook group is a thing that exists that you can join. Uh, and, and we've got some, some cool folks posting. Uh, we've got... Uh, you guys, have you guys been on the Facebook group? I've seen the memes. I yeah. The memes, yeah, the meme posters.
2: Yeah, I enjoy some of them.
1: There's yeah, they're they're generally 600. pretty good. Yeah,
2: cool. I haven't really seen some one solid that's memes. like. Yeah, they're pretty solid.
1: So I want to give a shout out to to uh, we've got some. Some very active meme posters who are delighting all of the alchemical actors. We've got uh, Velda S. and uh, Ayla, uh, a regular contributor uh, to our various corners of the world. Ayla, we know well, uh, and uh, Emily R. as well. Uh, Thanks, guys, for for keeping the... uh, keeping the uh, group active, Uh, but we invite all of you to uh, join the Facebook group uh, if you are Facebook-inclined, or find us on Instagram, all those other things, Uh, and write a review. Uh, Since we're all holed up and we have uh, at least a few extra seconds in our days than we ordinarily do because we're not driving to work, go ahead and write a review of Occult Confessions (laughs) on wherever is convenient, uh, Facebook, iTunes, or otherwise. All right, gang. Uh, that's it. That's it for us. Uh, Bree, do you know the words to get us out, or should I do that?
2: Um, I hereby do something and declare close this meeting of
1: hereby adjourn and declare closed.
2: <laughs> I hereby adjourn and declare closed this, this secret meeting. It's not a meetings, secret meeting. Secret. Cause this, this is a podcast. No, this I mean, meeting of the secret order of, order of, order of alchemical actors until such a time that that's we should time. get together and do it again.
1: Oh, so John knows it. A little bit. I oh, remember we'll, things, remember. Well, we'll test you next time. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. pretty good. <laughs> you got pretty all close. Right. Uh, all right, good. Uh, so joining us today on Voices, um, uh, well, Voices for the series is going to be Brandon Walls is doing the voice of John Todd, and we've also got Andrew Mims joining us in our voice collective. Uh, here on the episode, we had our patron progenitor, Johnny Cook. Bye-bye. Our metallurgic prophet, Brie Literal. Goodbye. Emmy, I am your host, Rob C. Thompson. Join us next time uh, for part two of two parts on John Todd and the Illuminati witch cult.